This time, we're kicking off Spielberg Month with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And along the way, we ask, was this meant to be so scary? Is Spielberg preparing us for first contact? And would you abandon your life to join the aliens? TWA 517, do you want to report a podcast? This is Force Fed Sci-Fi. Alrighty. Welcome back, folks. My name is uh, TWS-257, Sean Culp, and along with me is my podcast friend and co-host. I am electrical engineer Chris Rupp. <laughs> that is safe. That is really safe. I mean, not if you're Richard Dreyfus, because he abandons everything in this family to join the aliens in the mothership at the end. <laughs> what a douchebag. Oh, Richard Dreyfus. I uh I could that was actually my first thought. Not to I guess, you know give away too much but yeah when i saw this i was like wow this man literally just like bailed out on his wife and kids like i know she was saying you know let's get a divorce but still man like that's he just took that to the nth degree all right i'm free well i was just also amazed at like how quickly she turned from i love you so much and i support you too i'm taking the kids and leaving yeah i mean it, it, her character was definitely it felt like a um like a one-dimensional depiction of like those uh, suburban moms that are like, we have to keep up with the Joneses, like the typical white people back in the day. <laughs> you know, oh, my husband's a maniac. I got to leave. It's like, well, this is this relationship was meant for success. Yeah, and it's also during the nosy time in America when all everyone's neighbors knew everything about everyone. So when Roy lost his job, I'm sure it spread through the neighborhood like wildfire. Like, oh, did you hear Roy lost his job? Yeah, I hear he's going crazy. He's building mountains out of his mashed potatoes. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Pre-internet, where now we just uh, look at each other's social media pages and willy-nilly, you know, display that information out in public we don't even have to be nosy anymore people will just tell us right like now now we now the people who are outgoing and friendlier we look at them as the weirdos now <laughs> hey how you doing my name is sean and now i'm unemployed i'm suffering from crippling depression nice to meet you it's like wow wow dumping dumping away. the whole purse out aren't we <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my God. Well, I'm excited to get into this, man. Uh, I have not seen this. I never watched this film, and I've heard great things from so many people. So why don't you give us that synopsis, Chris, as you always do? All right. So when Roy Neary witnesses a possible UFO event, he begins to see visions of an unknown location and refuses to accept the common explanations for what happened to him. When he meets a mother who is experiencing the same visions, they resolve to find out together if humanity is really alone in the universe. Fantastic. Are we alone? Big, big plot. Like, big, like, Spielberg does not shy away from making these big blockbuster films with big messages to them. And this movie, it doesn't seem like it, but this screams big underlying message with a sci-fi veneer on it. He always does such a good job with relationships and his dynamics of like how people and children interact. Um, I got to say, Spielberg is just he's one of a kind director, man. You're never going to see anyone like him. No, absolutely not. And it just seemed appropriate to do a Spielberg month, given how much he's contributed to the genre of science fiction. But this was. Not his first film or his first major film. Uh, he did Jaws two years before this, which is a like is if you're gonna make a, a top ten of films of all time, I would think Jaws would be somewhere in that conversation. Oh yeah, I mean he's well, he's got just like such an incredible career, right? He does Jaws, Close Encounters, E.T., Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List. I mean, this guy like he's just been 
collectively knocking it out of the park like the first 20 years of his filmmaking career. Yeah, and in this movie, he also gets a chance to show off like his screenwriting abilities, which I never, I didn't think he had it in him because he doesn't write films that often. No, no, yeah, I didn't, I didn't th- see that either. And apparently, um, according to you know, the lead actor is Richard Dreyfus. He plays Roy uh, Neary, the electrical lineman from Indiana. But apparently, uh, he convinced, and I've heard this. Because I've listened to like the, I think it's like GQ interviews with uh, Dreyfus when he breaks down his career. But he said he hounded Spielberg into casting him in this film. And I guess Spielberg said that he Dreyfus talked him into casting him. And he listened to about 155 days worth, worth of close encounters. Well, and I think Dreyfus was kind of the non-obvious choice. I mean, he certainly has an, an everyman kind of quality to him. I mean, I'm just looking at some of the actors that they considered... Uh, for for Roy Neary, like Al Pacino, Jack Nicholson, Steve McQueen. Like, if you put Steve McQueen in this movie, like we're gonna expect we're gonna expect some like motorcycle jumps or something. But in it, in it's instant, like it's not relatable to have you know someone as cool as Steve McQueen play this everyday family man. Oh yeah, even like even Jack Nicholson, I would say would be tough. Me like. <laughs> like how would Jack even respond to the aliens? <laughs> I'm going to Wyoming to look for a mountain. See you later, honey. Like <laughs> like I don't even know how he would respond. Imagine Jack Nicholson being surrounded by a bunch of little aliens <laughs> at the end of the movie. I'm finally with my kind. Like how <laughs> I don't even know. He it's just looks at Spielberg like, Steven, how am I supposed to act to this? I don't understand. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I'm going to go get abused by Stanley Kubrick on my next movie. I'm out of here. <laughs> right? I mean, Pacino, you know, you can never have a Pacino with a wow. <laughs> like, I would say Gene Hackman, though. Loki, he's one of my favorite actors of all time. That I would be interested in seeing. Gene Hackman in this role, but like James Caan, eh, Dustin Hoffman, eh, maybe, maybe. I don't know if I would have wanted James Caan. Like James Caan, I mean, the image everybody has of of Jimmy Caan is, um, is is beating up his brother in law in The Godfather. Like I don't, I don't think of James Caan as, you know, blue collar family man. <laughs> Just start punching the aliens and the people. Get out of my way, pa. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. No, I I think Dreyfus is the 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 right choice because he's he's always been in every man. I, I mean, in his movies, he always has like some relatable quality to him, and uh, regardless of where he is in his career, and like I mean, one another strength of Spielberg's films is that he always casts them really well because this is, I mean, we obviously don't. This doesn't have you know a staying power to say like something like. Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws, but this is a good cast when they're all together on screen. I agree. They gel so well. Very well acted and everyone, they're just, he's great at writing, like having these characters with their specific roles and what they represent and how they interact with each other and really propel each other throughout the scene. I mean, even the dude that played like the French guy, Claude, I don't even know <laughs> Francis Tofonet. Like, what is that guy's name? Like, I'm, I'm going to try. Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to try it out as best I can. Uh, Francois Truffaut. <laughs> oh, we. Oui. He was so good. I think. I um, think we need the angry French smoking cow to try and help us out <laughs> with that that pronunciation. <laughs> hey, angry cow, get over here. But was this correct? Oh, hold on, on. Let me see. Let me look at it. Yes. I heard you. Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Thank you, angry French smoking cow. I'm sorry for all the cow murders in this movie. (laughs) No, no, no. They were asleep. (laughs) That's true. They were merely sleeping. (laughs) They were going... Oh my god. And who who else? I mean, um 
Terry Terry Gar was fantastic. Melinda Dillon was great. I mean, the I thought you know she was fantastic. Melinda Dillon. Yeah, she was fantastic, and her work I think got her um, an, an Academy Award nomination for it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Like, just I couldn't imagine her character Jillian like going through like your son because I think she was a single mother, um, or her husband had passed, and then just like having her son Barry get abducted. Well, and then also to see her run after the cloud or the shape that would ever abducts her son. I mean, that look of sheer panic and terror on her face. I mean, that's so hard to pull off. And if there's one critique I have of this movie is that we don't get more of Melinda Dillon, like furiously looking for her son, like going door to door asking her neighbors if they've seen Barry. Like, I wanted more of that in this movie. I agree. Because I was thinking, I was thinking just like you, where they really, like, jump from her son being abducted, her on the newspaper, to, like, getting interviewed by, like, the military and scientists. And and I couldn't imagine just, like, the loss. Like, how... I mean, she portrayed it very well. Just like almost like being a shell of a person because like you lose someone that you love so close that you had like out of you. Um, but I just I thought that they would at least give like a little bit more of her like chasing and running around being like, oh, my God, where's my son? Yeah. And and then the bond that she develops with Roy you know, over the course of the the last couple of acts of the movie is is really touching in a lot of ways. I mean, it's. I mean, in I mean, they're both kind of coming from you know opposite ends of the family spectrum. Roy's family is gone, but uh, Jillian still has a chance to try and save hers. So it's real, it's real heartwarming to watch them work together to try. And I don't know if Roy intentionally does this, but he does work to eventually reunite uh, Jillian with uh, Barry at the end of the movie. He does, and she they have that beautiful scene with her seeing her son again. And that little guy was adorable. Uh, <laughs> Carrie Guffrey or something, Guffy. <clears throat> he was just he, classic. The kid just had those one-liners the whole time. Bye-bye! <laughs> like, it was classic Spielberg. He, you're, It's never a Spielberg movie without a child in it. And I'm just, I'm just looking at it, I mean, because... Um, is it uh, Carrie Guffey? I mean, he he wasn't acting for too long, and I'm just there's a movie he did in 1979 where he played an extraterrestrial child. So it kind of seems <laughs> like he got typecast a little bit after Close Encounters came out. <laughs> You're the alien guy. It's like, oh, you were in the movie with the aliens. We're gonna make you an alien kid. Go put a suit on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Hopefully you got paid. <laughs> Hopefully you got paid. That's all I can ask for. <laughs> outside of that, it was a decent... Uh, yeah, it was pretty decent. We had uh, Lance uh, Herrickson, Henriksen appear. Yeah, I couldn't figure out like which role he played. He's credited as Robert in the cast. He's in the movie, too. Um, also, Carl Weathers, apparently, is also in this movie. It must be one of those... like blink and you miss it kind of roles but uh yeah like <laughs> i was not expecting uh either of those two gentlemen to be in this movie no <laughs> it was like oh okay okay you just had those like mysterious castings you know it's that's the spielberg way there's a reason why we uh i guess he's so worshipped in the movie making business i think he's somebody who knows exactly what he wants to put on screen and like this is this idea this movie he had has been had been ruminating in his head for a long time. I mean, even going back to his childhood days where he was making amateur films, I mean, he he even made a full-length science fiction film when he was 18 and he even incorporated wow. a lot of those shots from that movie into Close Encounters and when I read like at age 18, he could did a full length movie. I'm like, man, what was I doing at 18? It certainly wasn't making movies. No, not at all. Me either. <laughs> There's just one of the he's just one of those people that just he knew what he, he wanted to do. And he had that vision and just executed perfectly. He was meant to be a filmmaker. 
And this, I mean, that's wild that he made a film at 18. Because I know with this uh, movie, it, it took some time to, like, get the script off the ground. And didn't it go through, like, a lot of changes? Yeah, I mean, he started, I think he had a couple other screenwriters start work on it, uh, on it for him. Um, he had Paul Schrader, who's made a, a lot of decent movies nowadays. I think The Card Counter with Oscar Isaac in 2021. He did uh, First Reformed a few years ago. Um, but uh, Paul Schrader uh, wrote a screenplay that almost had nothing to do with Spielberg's original ideas. So that was kind of thrown out. Um, and mind you, this is also in the post-Jaws era. So Spielberg has a lot of clout behind him. He's able to wrangle a lot of creative control from the studio and just a lot of different screenwriters uh, come on to come on to the project he's got john hill at one point and um a couple other people come on and eventually spielberg just says fine i'm gonna write it myself because i'm not happy with anything and uh, eventually like yeah we get the close encounters finally it finally happened <laughs> after tons of uh yeah, well, sometimes that happens, I feel like, with movies. And it can always go either way, right? Where a movie, it's like in development hell, or it takes forever to like get the script off the ground. And then sometimes it's great, and you're like, wow, Close Encounters. And then sometimes it's like, oh, we just made Dune. Okay. So I'm glad this one worked out. I mean, yeah, it worked out. It almost, I mean, it almost didn't, because uh, the Air Force and NASA wanted nothing to do with the movie and even tried convincing Spielberg to not make it. <laughs> that, to me, is just wild. Imagine NASA and, like, the military, the Air Force, coming up to you and being like, I'm sorry, Mr. Rupp, but we don't want you to make this movie. <laughs> and we're willing to influence your decision not to otherwise. Like, I wonder if they paid him, tried to, like, like what they did to, like, change his mind. Uh, they... Uh, according to what I found, they wrote him a 20 page letter trying to tell him oh. not to make the movie, which if he read that or I'd be amazed. I would hope that he kept it as like, hey, look, NASA tried to tell me not to make something. That would be wild if he still I wonder if he still has that because that is that is pretty wild. I mean, I get it. Why like NASA and like the Air Force probably would be like against it because they're like, we don't want people running around. Area 51 or, you know, they didn't probably didn't want to reignite all the UFO hype that swept the nation in the 50s and 60s. So I, I, I can understand that. But at the same token, like it's a movie like this guy wants to tell a story. So you in some uh, aspects, it does show like how they knew how impactful he probably would have been. I think. Yeah, I think you're you're on the right track there. I think that they read his script and just sent it back saying like, please don't make this. You have too many things right. Or, you know, you have too many details. <laughs> you accidentally guessed correctly too many details as to how we would handle this kind of scenario. And you can't make this movie. <laughs> we don't want people to think this. No, uh, that's, that's ironic, especially like now, you know, in 2022 where, the they released files where basically pi, Air Force pilots are like, yeah, we really don't know what these objects are. There's UFOs. It's just wild how like over 50 years it's changed. Well, yeah, and this is kind of yeah, this is the beginning of, or at least right around in the middle of the time where like abductions or stories of aliens just seem to like be everywhere, like or. Mysterious, mysterious occurrences or happenings that couldn't immediately be explained. So people just thought, oh, it must be aliens. Didn't he? So I know you wrote down like Spielberg partnered with Michael Kahn. And for some reason, um, I'm blanking on who Michael Kahn is. But I know that uh, John Williams is in this, which is fantastic because I feel like they're always tied together, right? Like Spielberg and John Williams, if you want a perfect soundtrack, he always knocks it out of the park. They're they're always going to be joined at the hip, no matter what. Like, I think John Williams only has it in him now to do maybe like one movie a year, and most of the time he's going to do a Spielberg movie. Um, and this is this kind of gets overlooked in a in a lot of 
respects his work on Close Encounters, but his his score, man, is incredible. I was um, I went to um, a performance with a, uh, at a local orchestra with my beloved, and they they played about the last fifteen minutes of music from this movie, and it was amazing. I was in tears by the end of it, just of how rousing and emotional it is. His soundtracks, he's just so impactful. Like, I think we talked a little bit, like, off air about, like, the Jurassic Park soundtrack and just how John Williams, he, he's so he's able to tell a story without words. Yeah, he's an absolute genius, and I don't bestow that title onto many people, but John Williams is absolutely worthy of that moniker. But I'm glad that you enjoyed that, too. <laughs> I love John Williams. You will never get me to say that John Williams has ever made a bad score. He's so incredible. I think what um so like this movie I know it's had some like when I saw it the only like bad thing that I took away from it or not even bad but that it made me think in modern times was like Roy at the end so Roy ends up joining the aliens um which was a little bit weird he like abandons his family to go and like just go in the mothership because <laughs> the mothership comes down after the three you know, alien ships they've been chasing. That was a little weird, like initially. Um, you know, he just abandoned his two children and wife. And I guess Spielberg said later on that he regretted doing that because he wasn't married at the time. Yeah, I, I, I have a feeling that if Spielberg had made this in his 40s as opposed to his 20s, it would have been a wildly different movie. I mean, Spielberg has has been married a couple of times since this movie came out. He's had children, he's adopted children. So he, he knows the joys and and perils that come with being a husband and a father. And I think coming at this from like, kind of, I don't want to say dispassionate, but maybe uninformed is a better word an uninformed point of view really kind of, you know, kind of clouds, you know, the, the filmmaking aspect here. Yeah. Because the 20s, when you're in your 20s, it is kind of very selfish. I feel like I was very selfish in my 20s. So I could see how, like, not understanding, you know, not and not to say, you know, that um, there was anything bad with what, like, Roy did. He It seemed like Richard Dreyfuss said um, he he's glad that he didn't change the ending, I guess, because Richard Dreyfuss says as the character... Roy was so obsessed with the aliens, like he had to go. Like there was no other choice that he could have made except go, you know, because of everything that happened, his wife leaving. He was just like, I need to see this to the end, which I get, like obsessing over something. But I can also get where that, you know, being in your 20s and like not having so many life experiences where, um, not that I have kids, but I, I that just blew me too, where I was like, wow, he's, he's willing to leave his family. <laughs> It's kind of, that's intense. That I, I don't know. That's a real, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's a different movie if Roy is able to at least convince his wife to join him going to Devil's Tower. And it's an entirely different ending, you know, if the, if Roy then has an opportunity to say goodbye to his wife and family before joining the mothership. I mean, it's, it's a very different movie, but then... By doing that, we also don't get the journey that Jillian goes on in trying to get Barry back. So it's it's like it's like you can compromise and make one character, you know, you know, have a sort of complete arc with his family, but by doing so, you sacrifice this another also fulfilling arc for this character. I agree, and it's like where do you, what do you, where do you choose? Where do you go? What do you do? I think I don't know. He made the right choice um i thought you know it was unexpected it was very unexpected i thought roy was just gonna be like oh okay i saw it well all right bye <laughs> you know like he but i i also see where richard dreyfus is coming from it does make me wonder though like i don't know if they have it did they show the inside of the spaceship i don't believe they did so i would i would be curious I think in the theatrical cut they did, but in the director's cut that has kind of been the um, accepted or widely distributed cut, I think they eliminated those. So 
the movie ends with Roy getting on the mothership and it um, ascending to space, and then the and the credits start rolling. So I think I think there's another version of the movie out there where there's different scenes shown. Okay, because I I was curious what it was gonna look like inside and. But I mean, it ends, you know, it just ends because that was the first thing that I Googled when it ended. I'm like, what happened to Roy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> does he come back or is he just forever ascended into space to live with the cosmonauts? I mean, I like that Spielberg and Dreyfus have stood by their choices. And I mean, even like 40 some odd years later, like we're still... Like, we're still talking about that ending. And, like, what does it mean? Like, where is Roy going? Why was Roy chosen? Like, that's that's the kind of ending that has staying power. Absolutely. And that's why it, this film is so impactful. Because it did, if it had, like, the quote-unquote Hollywood ending, then, you know, it, it just might be one of those, ah, it was a good film. On to the next one. The Hollywood ending is Roy returning to his family and, you know, apologizing for the errors of his ways. But like this is him embracing, you know, the unknown or in him finally, you know, coming coming to the realization that one journey is ending and another is beginning. Absolutely. And that's a wild choice to make. But hey, he did. He did it. Um I thought this film, like how NASA, and we kind of touched on it, NASA and the Air Force would, telling Spielberg not to make this film, probably because like in this movie, the feds are like so gaslighting. And I called that out when I was watching it, like when the animals all passed out and they're like, warning, you know, yeah, toxic air <laughs> all over Wyoming. Run away. I'm like, there's no way that's toxic air. It's all it's all a government sham. You know, they're just pretending to scare the people. But it makes sense. You know, they have to, because how else are you going to get a bunch of people out of a high, you know, profile area? Right. And this is why I think this um, that the government got involved in asking him not to make this, because this is directly out of their playbook to evacuate a mass area in the event of a first contact. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, I feel like we do that even without a first contact, not we as the military, but like, I feel like the government does that. And like, you know, that to me from like a um, perspective, if you want to control a situation, that would make sense. It's need to know, and what is the right decision that I can get people out of here without causing as much pandemonium um, or people that are going to, you know, like it sucks being like, oh, you're going to die. You know, <laughs> here's all these cows that are, that look dead. But I mean, it's like, what, what else are you going to do? Because if you say, oh, there's aliens, like it's going to be even more pandemonium and you can't control that scene. Whereas if, you know, you say toxic gas, well, people are going to run away. So then I can create a funnel and get them out of there. So I understand that choice. I really do. Well, yeah. And then like the if the government should basically teach a master class in gaslighting because it's not <laughs> the only instance that that occurs in the movie. Like you, you see the I think it's the two Air Force colonels at the head of that conference table, you know, and they've pulled in all of the, the witnesses of the, the UFO event. And they show him that blown up picture like this is a flying saucer. Oh, by the way, this is also a photo that I created in my front yard of my kid throwing a pie tin up in the air. <laughs> that was so good. That dude was trolling them so hard. Uh, he got me too, though. I was like, wow, they got a photo. And then, ah, oh, dick. Well, and also that seems like a bit of a mistake. Like, don't gather a hundred witnesses in one room like you have to <laughs> you do that one at a time that's a bit of a faux pas on the air force's part i agree that that was not a good uh technique with like interrogation and trying to influence um because yeah when you when it's you versus a hundred and a hundred people have pretty much similar thoughts they're probably going to start talking and then come to a group consensus and you're out Whereas if you go individually one by one and then you start breaking down, gaslighting their thoughts individually, I feel like that's an easier way to influence and manipulate. Look at us talking about ways to control. 
By no regards am I saying this is good behavior to do. (laughs) No, no, no. This is absolutely abhorrent behavior. Like, do not do this. Don't do this. (laughs) But it makes sense from a tactical perspective. Well, yeah. And then they try to do everything they can do to discredit, like, these witnesses. I mean, there's they don't assist in um, Jillian when Barry's abducted. And, I mean, I'm, I'm... I mean, you can play all the kind of guessing games you want, but they may have had a hand in Roy losing his job at one point just to discredit him even further. But, I mean, they're all there. I mean, except for that wacko who says, like, oh, yeah, I saw Bigfoot, too. Like, <laughs> yeah, they they all know what they saw. They all did. They knew. And they and I feel like with such a traumatic event like that, it's that's a hard thing to sell, like to dissuade people. That's a really difficult, especially with different experiences of it. It's interesting. It's interesting, though, that like still how skeptical society and people are, you know, despite someone going through such a significant event in their life, you know, because didn't you write about there were two people that had an abduction story and there was like a lot of skepticism about it. So, yeah, like I I sent over some notes to you like about this or and I, I did a bit of a deeper dive into um it's called the 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 abduction of betty and barney hill now this is kind of this has been reported as one of the first major abduction stories quote unquote for um uh in terms of alien abductions um so on the evening of september 19th 1961 uh betty and barney hill were driving back through the woods of new hampshire when they notice an erratically behaving um, light. So they pulled over um, to see. Uh, Barney had a set of binoculars that he uh, took out and was looking. Uh, and Betty, his wife, was a, a witness to this whole event. And they they uh, apparently saw this light, and it, it flew close by them. And after this, they entered a state of altered consciousness and woke up after being moved roughly 35 miles from their original spot. And they reported this incident to the Air Force and were even interviewed by... This is a this was a civilian agency at the time. There was no real government oversight. It was only active for about 20 years. It's called NICAP, or the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which was basically a... It was basically a civilian UFO like observation group. Like they would hear about people who were quote unquote abducted or they saw UFOs and then they would go be interviewed by like credible doctors or Air Force personnel or something like that. Um, uh, But it wasn't until about like two years later or actually like two months later where Betty would later experience like these massively vivid dreams like she you know, had dreams of being abducted, reliving that experience or being on the spacecraft. And she and and Barney uh, underwent hypnosis at the time. So um, they were under hypnosis for a while. They talked to, they documented what they saw or experienced and things like that. And Betty always embraced, uh, more fully embraced what happened to her more than Barney did. But their, but their story has been thought to kind of like be a hallucination and uh, there's even some drawings during their hypnosis sessions that look like um look like aliens from a few episodes of the outer limits <laughs> so <laughs> some elements of their story have been discredited but i think it's it's impossible to totally disprove it um uh barney unfortunately passed away in 1969 from uh, brain aneurysm but betty would ride this publicity up until her death in 2004, she actually became one of the UFO community's like most staunchest supporters. Like, and she was basically she was like the godmother of alien abductions in the 60s. Like, everybody like she went to a lot of events. There were books written about her and her husband's experience. I mean, I mean, hell, there were even episodes of like prominent television shows that were based off of their experience. Wow, that's wild. So they were super influential to the community. 
Well, I mean, again, like, I don't know how much validity I put into their story because of their differing accounts and elements of their story have been disproven, but not the whole thing. So it's just (laughs) and honestly, like if even if these abductions like are true, I don't see the point in abducting random ass people (laughs) off the road or off the field or whatever. It's like, I mean, if they're trying to like probe our weaknesses, like, (laughs) like hijack a military general or abduct a president or like s- s- someone you can get secrets from not like not just a married couple out for a drive <laughs> maybe maybe that's why aliens do that right because if they if they get someone too high profile then we'll know they're missing so then they'll put us on red alert per se so so they so they go for the uh maybe aliens are that smart chris where where they know that if they go for the civilians that are like kind of you know meandering around with life then that no one will take it seriously but i don't know that, yeah, that's but to abduct a th- but to abduct a 3 year old in this movie yeah. they take a child in this movie <laughs> they're 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 going they want to study us on all ranges race ethnicity i don't know like that's that's kind of my thing too when the kid got taken i was like what what is the point um i mean i guess maybe scientific purposes from the aliens perspective they want to study us and like see but um i was really that was the one thing to me that was really confusing like why did they take us what was the goal and and I think that's something with this movie where Spielberg, he doesn't focus on that. He focuses more like on the relationships and how they're impacted by the uh, abductions. But they, they took a bunch of people, right, from like World War Two. I mean, tons of different people were abducted. I mean, yeah, like they're brought back at the end of the film. But like th- we don't learn why they were taken or what the aliens even did to them in the first place. Like there's that that um that group of uh, TBM Avengers that was taken. There was the the crew of the the Cotapaxi that was taken. A bunch of dogs. Dogs even come off of the spaceship, which I <laughs> even when I was watching it with my beloved, I'm like, "Oh, why did they take the dogs?" <laughs> right? I mean, maybe and and they didn't age either, which was wild. So maybe like and it, maybe it's like one of those things with like theories of like relativity, like an in interstellar. The aliens abducted these people, left orbit, had them for like in their time a day or a couple or like a week. But in our time, it was years. And then when they brought them back, it was like, oh, you know, I've only been gone for like two weeks. You know, but for us, it was like, it's been 30 years, Chuck. Uh, maybe the aliens were just keeping like some weird ass collection or something. That too. They, you really don't. Uh, we really don't get an explanation of um, what their motives were, and I think that in a way makes the film like suspenseful, scary, terrifying. Like to me, because I I didn't know what their motives were the whole time, and I'm like, oh my god, is this where like the aliens are gonna murder everyone? <laughs> like, what is going on? You really, I I was on edge. Excuse me, especially like the last thirty minutes of the film where they finally made the contact and had that little uh, music, I guess, show. Yeah, it was more like, I think it was more like a a call and response kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, like we, we, the aliens, we had these two notes. Do you know the rest of the notes that we gave you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And they, they just had like a synth battle with synthesizers that was pretty funny i was like oh the 70s (laughs) well yeah like like you were saying like this movie like this movie i think is is scarier than spielberg intended it to be like i know you were you were saying you were on the edge of your seat during that when the mothership shows up but i mean how about the scene where barry and jillian are trapped in their house and all the appliances are going off and the aliens are unscrewing the floor vents and the toys are going off. Like I was, I was freaking out in that scene. Me too. Me too. That was wild. It, it, you really didn't know what was going to happen to the family, the kids. And that's, I think he set that tone for that reason. Like he didn't want the aliens to come off as like these friendly people. Um, but he also didn't want them to come off as like, like these 
murderous beings either. Like they they came for what they wanted, and and he did a great job shooting that too. That scene with the lights, the tint having orange, and just shaking the house. That that had to have been so much fun for the crew and the actors. It was a brilliant job by cinematographer Vilmos Zygmunt to like just play with all the um, the lights and it's a brilliantly shot scene like it was it's suspenseful and it's it's horrifying and then you're you're left in shock and awe when uh, Jillian is just running after that cloud at the end of it yeah because Barry's the little kid he's just like ah I want to play <laughs> oh Barry just just lets the aliens in just run outside uh, that that kid gets into so much trouble. I mean, Roy nearly runs him over, chasing after the UFO, and then he lets himself get taken by the aliens because he thinks like, "Hey, I want to play too." Yeah, he's just the choices made. It's it's so interesting, um, but in a way, I guess it makes sense. I was trying to think like modern three year olds today would they be so willing? You know. And I don't know. I think it just depends on the child. Because there's some kids that are super like, hey! And then some kids are like, what the? Get away from me, you weirdo. Maybe the 70s were just a different time. Yeah, people were more trusting back then. Now the rule is you meet a stranger, punch him in the nuts. That's the rule. Yeah, exactly. Don't care if you're an alien, an animal, or a human. Get away. <laughs> I, but it was, it was good. Um... It's really interesting. I think like modern days, like I don't know, aliens now. I don't really hear too much about them. They're not. They're not. It's not really like an interesting thing to put on screen anymore because aliens kind of like become a catch-all thing. Like, oh, why do we have this advanced technology? Oh, because of aliens. Oh, or why are people keep going missing? Well, because of aliens. Like, it's it's almost become like too easy to like make an alien film, which is why I think like first contact films are so interesting. Like this and like you watch this movie and then you watch Arrival from Denis Villeneuve, and there's a lot of DNA of Close Encounters in that movie, and kind of um, like it's it's. I, thing if you are making an alien movie you got to make like a first contact uh type of story here i agree because it's more interesting to see like how people react to the species and like how the world reacts and and i think it allows like the director and writers to really play with different outcomes there's there's a lot more conflict there as opposed to like you know, if there is no first contact, then then what what else is there? Aliens attack, you know, or humans attack. I think you can kind of get pigeonholed into one uh, style of storytelling. Right. And this is like this is a different kind of alien story. Like Spielberg doesn't make, you know, angry alien movies or he's made one or two i think um but this is kind of like his whole like aliens can be our friends kind of story Mm -hmm. or his his idealist thinking when it comes to like a first contact scenario yeah yeah and i think it's absolutely i think it's right up that alley for how in my mind i would love our first contact to be you know because we talked about mars attacks and how Mars attacked, and that's just hilarious, you know, spoof of satire and, you know, crazy aliens murdering everyone. But uh, this this would be, hopefully, I would hope, um, our reality of how we would deal with um, UFOs. I mean, I would hope that the government wouldn't get up to as much subterfuge or gaslighting, but... <laughs> I mean, I, I think, and, and this is something we've talked about before on this project, that, you know, if we do experience first contact sometime in our generation, I really hope it goes the Star Trek way. And we see a new era of technology and peace and, you know, solving the global crisis that gets ushered in from this. Like, I would, I would love for that to happen. A much more optimistic take. I definitely agree with you. That would, that would be the ultimate hope (laughs) i and chris apparently all you have to do is fly through the bermuda triangle to get there 
<laughs> oh my god like <laughs> when you look up like like even right at the very beginning of the movie you see all these these planes in the middle of the desert and it's like oh my gosh what happened and then they, they kind of unpack it as the story goes on like oh this uh this group disappeared uh over the you know somewhere off of florida or um the ship that they find in the gobi desert that also disappeared in the bermuda triangle and like the bermuda triangle like let's just say like it's an urban legend like there's there's perfectly logical explanations for why things go missing um there there's um the possibility of magnetic variances that lead to navigation errors. Um, there's also the strength of the Gulf Stream itself. It's one of the strongest ocean currents in the world. So yeah, like if a small craft like sinks or something, it's very plausible for it to get washed away outside of a search area. Um, you also can't rule out human error. Like like pilots or boats like get lost or and sink all the time. Like. I mean, how many stories have we heard of, you know, people trying out experimental aircraft and dying, you know, because, you know, they got too big for their britches? <laughs> very, yeah, all very plausible and uh, logical reasons. I, I definitely agree. But there's some, I mean, it, and also, too, like, this is a massive area. Like, it ranges anywhere from half a million to a million and a half square miles of ocean. So there's bound to be something that happens in a specific space. I mean, and there's, there's even been documented incidents like going as far back as when, um, the Santa Maria was, uh, making landfall, um, um, uh, there and among the, the Caribbean islands there. So there's, I mean, I don't know if UFOs were visiting in 1492. It's possible. I don't know. Um, (laughs) but I mean, I just think that there's logical explanations for what happens to all of those disappearances, quote unquote. Oh, yeah. And the ocean, like, I think people forget that the ocean is so vast. We, we don't need, we've not even searched any, like, all of the ocean. It's impossible. We don't have the technology to do so. So the likelihood of craft being, like, washed away and sinking to depths so low that our scanners can't pick it up to me is very, um, very plausible. Very plausible. I have gotten lost myself in the YouTube, uh, uh, tunnel (laughs) where i've like listened to stories or done like on the bermuda triangle where people like yeah went to a different dimension (laughs) but i don't know it's uh it's definitely just one of those things where um you know i i'm comfortable with not knowing or not understanding and i'm not too worried (laughs) no spoilers i don't think there's anything untoward or you know, interdimensional happening in the Bermuda Triangle. I just think it's just, it could be just one of those weird places where a lot of uh, wrecks happen. Um, I mean, you can't rule out human error with something like this. It's just, it happens. I mean, I mean, if you're in a small craft, like you, you may not have the most advanced navigational equipment. So yeah, you could get lost pretty easily. Um, If there is a violent weather event, such as a downburst, like that could easily you know sink your ship or capsize you like it's and also too like there's i think there aren't there's sharks in that water so or they all manner of things that could possibly eat you so <laughs> nom, 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 nom. exactly like so i think people just want to it's it's like the bigfoot thing like oh like well we don't know for sure whether or not uh we don't know if bigfoot's real but we don't know if he's not real like it's just it's like, well, yeah, like weird things happen in the Bermuda Triangle, but we don't know if that's just a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it's just one of those things. Hey, it makes money, though, and uh, sells and creates stories. So maybe it's just a legend, you know, it's like one of those legends that will always exist. Oh, it's absolutely an urban legend. I don't think there's any validity to, you know, the whole like, oh, their aliens are abducting people or there's an interdimensional portal. I just like <laughs> I mean, and these stories have been around for years. So it's it's plain to see like why Spielberg gravitated towards like specific things from the triangle, like a, a group of um, Avengers that goes disappearing in the triangle. Yeah, that's an interesting mystery. And why not? you know, solve it in a fun way by putting it in his alien abduction movie. Absolutely. 
So with this movie, do you... Uh, well, I don't think... No one died in this movie, right? Yeah, that's right. Because the cows and like the animals just went to sleep. No, nobody dies. I mean... I mean, Roy's in uh, Ronnie's marriage dies, but I mean that's 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 a more uh, that's a more metaphorical death, I would say. <laughs> that's the red shirt for the for the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I mean, I, I mean, I did have a yellow shirt though. I mean, um, I mean, when, right. uh, yeah, when Jillian and Roy are uh, they they escape their their captivity there uh, at the military camp. There's a there's a third person. That manages to join them. I think it's it's his name is Larry Butler. Manages to run mm-hmm. along with them, and unfortunately, he falls victims to the the army's extreme knockout gas. But yeah, like he had the cojones <laughs> to step up and say, "I'm going to join you guys. I want to find out what's that Devil's Tower. Let's go." That's right, because no, no, all of them stayed in the helicopter. They were all afraid to leave and follow Roy. Be like, "We gotta get out of here. There, you, you can breathe. Rip off your mask." <laughs> Uh, it's all okay. You should have kept that gas mask, dude. <laughs> right? The one reason. They did it. He did have uh, my moment um, that was really intense was when Roy couldn't get up the mountain. You know, he, he would climb and he would get so close and then just fall back down. Uh, Spielberg with his uh, suspense. I think most of that suspense itself comes from a the sound of the helicopter, you know, getting closer and closer to them, and John Williams just again his impeccable work on this movie, and then coupled with Spielberg's framing of the shots and just how it's filmed with, um, you know, the close up of uh, Dreyfus's and Dylan's hands just trying to reach for each other, you know, in that last moment of like here, like I can help you, let's help each other, um. Uh, in the situation they're in he just he just had to let go and and work as a team yeah i don't uh i uh, maybe like my my for a lens flare i think we talked a little bit about it my lens flare would be the douchebag that was selling the gas masks and the animals you know because so when the uh when the feds cleaned out uh, Wyoming, where the landing spot was, you know, they said the knockout gas, so they sent everyone packing. And there was some guy that was selling masks, gas masks, and I think animals to test out the air, like little birds, for like, what did you, I think you said like 50 bucks a piece, which is insane because this is 1977. And so I did math <laughs> using the inflation calculator, and $200 in 1970 compared to now, would have uh, been $1,462. So this dude was price gouging in the name of capitalism. He's, imagine that. You're you're like displaced from your home, and you just drop like $1,400 to like breathe. That's, that's messed up. So that was yeah. a dirtbag move. Freaking grifter. Just <laughs> taking advantage of the situation to make some money. Well, this would be a way to get rich. <laughs> Supply and demand, baby. How about you? Yeah, I gotta agree with you that that, that gas mask selling grifter in in Moorcroft has got to be uh, my lens flare too. I I hated that freaking guy. I'm watching the movie thinking like, man, if I were there and I see this douche canoe selling gas masks for forty five dollars, I'm punching him right in the head and ripping up his sign while I'm at it too. Like he even had the audacity to write in there. Oh, I have gas masks for your dog too. <laughs> Freaking jerk. Yeah. He is just, that's a lot of money to be dropping on a gas mask, especially when it wasn't real. Well, whatever. <laughs> the jerk. He has to live with himself, which I'm sure he did in the movie world. I need or, a but, toxic fandom or go for it. I mean, maybe like, you know, somebody on the train, you know, out of town, like just threw him off. It's like, nope, you can stay here. <laughs> Let whatever toxic <laughs> cloud is come and get you. Right. We'll, we'll get we'll get our money back some way. So uh, uh, any toxic fandom for you that you discovered? <laughs> I, uh, I did find I did find one. Um, there, there are several. I mean, granted, this is also nearly a, a 50 year old movie, so 
do have the benefit of uh, of time to uh, to provide us with all of these errors, quote unquote. So, one of the air traffic controllers at the Indianapolis Center asked the Air Force if they have any tests going on in Restricted Area Two Five Zero Eight. R two five zero eight is in California and Nevada. It would be controlled out of the Los Angeles Center. <laughs> ah, well, great that they know their geography. If there's one thing that we can take away after every entry in this week in Toxic Fandom is that <laughs> there is a pedant for nearly every sort of occupation and interest that has ever existed. because we have an air traffic control pedant out there (laughs) just watching (laughs) movies and waiting for their time to strike (laughs) oh god (laughs) that's like the people that correct you when you mispronounce a word you know and they stop the whole story to be like no this is how you say it it's like all right can we focus on the story? Like, thanks, all right, Webster, settle down. <laughs> let's just let's pump the brakes there. Oh God, <sighs> what a life! What a life, Chris. Uh, well, I know, like with this movie, um, it was a it was a pretty big success. I think I've I've heard the the story about um, Spielberg wanted to compete with George Lucas because Star Wars was released in 1977. So they took bets on who would make more money. So the the story goes is that um, George Lucas actually visited the set of Close Encounters and told Spielberg, like, oh, my God, your movie's going to be so much bigger than mine was. Uh, I think you're going to have the biggest hit or it's going to be so much bigger than mine. It's going to have a it's going to have a, you know, a bigger impact. So they they decided to trade points now. If you're unfamiliar with that term, points are basically a financial percentage. You know, somebody, if an actor negotiates saying like, oh, I want eight points of the gross. So basically they're saying they want 8% of the worldwide box office gross. So what they did is they bet. So Spielberg said like, okay, if Star Wars makes more money, you give me uh, two, two and a half percent, two and a half points. However, if Close Encounters makes more money, I'll give you two and a half percent. So everybody knows like how that <laughs> turned out. <laughs> Spielberg. Oh, is... Now, well, Star Wars was the success it was. It was one of the biggest films of all time. Close Encounters didn't nearly gross as much as Star Wars did. So, yeah, that's why Spielberg came out ahead by, <laughs> by 40 million dollars in that bet. God. <laughs> wow. Oh, uh, cuz I know like this movie made like 306 million and Star Wars made like almost 800 million. So that's just kudos to Spielberg. He's smart though. I guess he 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 was able to finance his next movie with that money alone. <laughs> well, this is still like even like 306 million dollars in 1977. That's still a lot of money it, like for them God. that was that's wildly successful i mean and this was made on a budget of 19 and a half million so yeah like huge box office returns and it was even a columbia pictures most successful movie at the time and really saved that studio out of bankruptcy because they were on dire financial straits like they did not expect spielberg to balloon the budget as much as it was and it really saved them from insolvency God, kudos to them, man. I mean, because, let's see, he made $40 million off of that bet? All uh, right? Yeah. Yeah, he made $40 million. So off of that, back then, compared to today, he made $174 million off of that bet alone. <laughs> oh, my God. That is insane. Yeah, but then he, he just... probably invested it with Bernie Madoff and lost a lot of money. <laughs> Oh, never trust a man whose last name is Madoff. <laughs> it's literally. Aren't you worried he's gonna made off with your money? Ayo. <laughs> oh my god. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Classic. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, kick butt, dude. That is awesome. How did this... I'm sure... Well, didn't we say this film, it got um, it got a bunch of Oscar nods? Yeah, it was nominated for a total of eight Academy Awards for Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Sound <laughs> Mixing, and Best Visual Effects, and would wind up winning for Best Cinematography and Best Sound Editing. And... I mean, also, too, like, you got to look at the movies that came out in 1977. Obviously, Star Wars um, came out in that summer. But you also had movies like Saturday Night Fever and Annie Hall out this year, too. So this was a very loaded year for films. And I know we say that a lot, but, like, (laughs) those four movies, like, these four movies are, like, some of the best that have ever been made. That's wild. It's just, and, and I guess Richard Dreyfuss he earned or not him but he was also in a, another best picture the goodbye girl so he starred in like two really good academy you know nominated films well yeah he even won an academy award for best actor for a movie he did this year so he's he's everything's coming up trifus <laughs> it was his year in 78 <laughs> that's wild kudos i well deserving in my opinion, very well deserving. Well, yeah, and like even I mean, there's a I mean, we've briefly talked about the director's cut of this movie, and I guess the story goes that Spielberg was almost immediately dissatisfied with how the movie turned out, even though he did have final cut, which to me is <laughs> odd. Um, but he two years later he got a million uh, a, a he got 1.5 million to do a re-edit of this movie, and it has now become like sort of the definitive, you know, cut that people look to. And it's been re-released numerous times. I think it's it's the first uh, you know option that comes up when you're you know searching for it on uh, on Amazon Prime or whatever. And it's like it's it's nice to see because I think this is the actual version of the film he intended everybody to see. I. Yeah, I agree. That's it's the reason why I watched it because I saw a director's cut, and then the years were so close. So I was like, "Well, you know, I'd rather watch this because I think there is even a little bit more footage." So I, I, I'll trust Spielberg for his director's cut. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, you want to rate this puppy? <laughs> Uh yes, I would I would love to. Let's get into this. So, on our unique scale on the Force Fed Sci-Fi podcast of wouldn't watch, would watch, would own, and would host a viewing party. Sean, let's start with you. What do you give to Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Uh, for this movie, hands down, I would give it a uh, would host a viewing party. I think it's crisp, clean. It's and I feel like this is going to be a common theme with all Spielberg's films as we review them. He's just, he is a master storyteller. And much like with Jaws, I'm appreciating more Spielberg in the 70s as well. Because he he definitely is taking a lot of chances with this movie. I think the depiction of the aliens and like just the special effects, how, what he used for back in the times, back in the day... To me, it aged well, and it's just it's something that you really can marvel at for how his mind is just as a filmmaker and making a lot with a little. And it, I think this like the script's great; it still stands the test of time. I think there's everything in this movie for someone to take away if you like sci-fi or if you like focusing on psychology or relationships. I mean, there's a lot, and I think there's even more to unpack and. Overall, just really well done film. Really well done. So I, I give it a wood host of viewing party, hands down. How about you, Chris? Uh, well, I'm going to come in slightly below you, and I'm going to call this a wood own. Um, and that's not to say that I don't love this movie. Um, this feels very modern uh, in spite of how old it is. And I think a lot of that has to do with um just the story that spielberg has crafted a lot like what you were saying i think richard dreyfus is the the perfect actor to play roy neary and to see a man possessed by an idea 
to the detriment of his life like it seems like right at home in every generation like it's 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 the it's the basis for a lot of stories that you know we consume and that we read about but i think and and we certainly touched on this too i think if spielberg had made this you know 20 years later in this in his life it would have been a vastly different movie um i don't know if it would have been as beloved as it is now but it still would have been a great movie but we just don't know i think it's it's great to see the product exist the way it does now um and i think a lot of i think the message behind it is to encourage people to not be afraid of the unknown and that hopefully we're not alone in the universe and i think ultimately we should take away a lot of hope and a lot of wonder for the future because we don't know what that can hold and that's true with a lot of spielberg films um i think another reason why this movie holds up so well is the visual effects something we didn't really talk about that much in this episode but they were done by the the legendary douglas trumbull who recently passed away he also did the visual effects for blade runner and i even watching this now i was in awe of the mothership coming down at the climax and just just in my head my inner monologue was thinking oh my god these are amazing and this movie itself just runs the entirety of the emotional spectrum you're scared you're laughing you're amazed at what you're seeing but i think today's audiences aren't really going to pay attention to this method of storytelling there's a lot of show and not tell and there's a lot of a lot of things that you have to glean from watching it. You can't glean it from the dialogue. And that's why I'm calling this a would own. Modern audiences just may not grasp it as well as others would. But still, I got to give it to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Probably one of the best movies all around that we've watched for this podcast. Amen, brother. <laughs> Great review. I I totally agree with you, man. Fantastic fantastic film uh i agree absolutely well we're gonna continue on with spielberg month sean you want to hear what we're gonna watch for next time i'm down what is it gonna be well i think you can't discuss steven spielberg without talking about his classic from 1982 we are (laughs) watching et the extraterrestrial wow wow (laughs) <laughs> I haven't seen this God since I was like eight or nine years old. It's been a long time. Holy crap. God, probably since the nineties. I'm down. <laughs> I'm so down. Uh I'm so excited to watch this. And Sean, whether these movies are great or terrible, it is always a pleasure to talk about them with you. <laughs> right back at you, Chris. Always a pleasure. And I'm grateful for uh, this review and for this Spielberg month, man. Thank you, man. It was good. Thank oh, you, thank my you. pleasure, my friend. And if you enjoyed this episode of the Force Fed Sci-Fi Podcast, we strongly encourage you to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. It really helps to drive us up the charts as well as help people like you find the show. We are across the spectrum of social media with Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at ForceFed Sci-Fi. You can check out and download episodes from Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you find podcasts. And go ahead and hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Finally, you can check out our website, ForceFedSciFi.com, for show notes and links to all of our social media. And so for all of us at the ForceFed Sci-Fi team, we will see you next time.